This is Norman Sylvester, the Boogie Cat. You're listening to KBOO Portland. KBOO's Slavic Community Hour is looking for new collective members. The Slavic Community Hour is an interactive news, talk, and music program focused on Portland's Ukrainian and Russian community. No experience is required. Just an enthusiasm for Slavic culture and a desire to learn. If you speak Ukrainian or Russian and have an interest in community radio, please reach out to program at kboo.org to learn more. That's program at kboo.org. Due to unforeseen circumstances, we are airing a repeat of a Talking Earth show that originally aired on June 21st, 2021. Please disregard the dates for upcoming events in this show since the show originally aired last year. Dan Raphael will be back on the third Monday of next month with another Talking Earth episode. This is Barbara Lamorticella and this is Talking Earth on KBOO Radio 90.7 FM in Portland. It's June of 2021 and with me through the wonders of technology are three poets, Penelope Scambly-Shot, Mark Thoman, and Sam Rojas-Chua. Mark and Sam are two of the many poets Penelope has hosted at her long-running gathering, the White Dog Salon, where poets with many divergent voices gave readings from their newly published books. Penelope is well known on both U.S. coasts as a poet and teacher. Until Penelope moved to Oregon with her husband, Eric Sweetman, in 2001, she lived on the East Coast. She was raised in an apartment building in downtown Manhattan and for many years lived and worked in New Jersey. As a single mother, she worked as an assistant professor at Ruskers University and supplemented her income by working at various odd jobs, from modeling to nurses' aiding. Penelope has published 14 chapbooks and 17 full-length collections of poetry. Among her many awards was a 2004 Oregon Book Award. Her books have faithfully chronicled every chapter of her life in a way that is both honest and wildly imaginative. Tonight, we'll only have time to hear from her two newest books, Sophia and Mr. Walter Whitman, published this year, and we'll open with Penelope reading from On Dufer Hill, a love song to Dufer, Oregon, a tiny Oregon rural agricultural town of staggering beauty that she has come to love and made her home. Welcome, Penelope. Would you share a few poems with us that will help bring us to Dufer? Delighted. The first one I'm going to read is called Trying to Show You. Up here, the horizon makes a circle with bumps for the mountains. From Dufer Hill, I can see my house, two states, and parts of seven counties. These high wheat fields are golden, even if it's a cliche to say so. I could use ochre or yellow matter, but really the wheat is intensely golden. And while I'm giving you color words, a red combine comes carving a pattern through the high ripe wheat. 
It's red, a red between brick and maroon. Now the combine is heading right at me. I want to snap a photo with my phone, but the sunlight is so damn brilliant that I can't see which symbol to press. That's why I have to write this down. You, reader, aren't up here with me, so no use shouting, look at this. I wish I could show it to my dead father, but what good in wishing. Look, I'd say, how wheat dust rises to float and settle over headless stubble. Here's my plan to share this town with everyone I love. I live right next to the school and I get to see everything that goes on. So this next poem is called Manning Up. Between rows of pickups and cars in the lighted high school parking lot, next to the perfectly chalked football field, a skinny eight-year-old boy comes skipping until he glances up at the bald coach and the whole high school football team armored in shoulder pads. Now the boy switches to man-stride, solid, heavy, hulking, deliberate, his hair still soft and must like a puppy. I'm not this boy's mother, but somewhere inside me, an iron portcullis drops against soldiers massed at the castle wall. <laughs> Penelope, you know everyone in town, everyone in town knows you. You volunteered to teach poetry writing to the kids. You're next to the school and, and uh, watch what's going on there. And many things uh, went on there last summer during the fire because it was a, um, it was the official, the schoolyard was the official gathering place for the, uh, the fire people. Could you read a, a couple of the poems uh, about uh, the people? Sure. I guess this goes with Manning Up. Another afternoon practice. Hey, it's my turn to be last, yells one boy in his red t-shirt. He jogs behind the line of kids, grinning. I would appoint him CEO of every global corporation, or maybe president. No, really, I want to marry him. <laughs> yeah, and you came to love the the farmers decent hardworking, uh kind people the good old boys in the season of the burn ban june too hot early green baked from the hillsides lupin flowered and done or dried into purple straw our exposed summer legs stabbed with cheatgrass even the pointed mountain shedding snow too soon. At the ranger station, a sign raised by Smokey the Bear, fire danger high. And yet, with our fine new fire station, our 
faithful fleet of fire engines, our quorum of good old boys who carry dedicated pagers on the dashboards of pickups or in worn pockets of overalls, who carry big tanks of water in the backs of their trucks with local dogs ready to howl. We are safe. We are so safe. Actually, we weren't that safe. The fire burned all around town. I've had people ask where I find poems, and I mostly find them walking. So this is called After This Morning's Dog Walk. On this clear November morning, the whole town seems aglow like our local snowy mountain or my bouncy white dog. Now the dog and I arrive home one of us repeating phrases. The dog bends to her water bowl while I hurry over to my desk. You're always working on poems, comments my sweet man, but I can't agree. No, I say, trying to explain my life to him. It's those cockamamie poems, how they're always working on me. <laughs> I think we have time for one is one of the cockamamie poems that worked on you. <laughs> and it takes us into a different realm, which is Tonight the Sky. Tonight the Sky is a clear Pyrex bowl inverted over our little town. You can see right through it to stars on the inside and outside of the bowl. A few come loose. They sparkle as they fall into my waiting palms. Each star is small and hard and a lot cooler than you might have suspected. I walk our tiny grid of streets, knocking at every house with its big TV still on. Here, have some splendor, I say, holding out the stars still cupped in my hands. Such fine neighbors, no one in town acts the least bit surprised. And the last poem that I'll read from this book is Sunday Morning. Most people here are churchgoers. My regular thing is I go up and sit on a certain rock on the top of Dufer Hill. Sunday morning, the congregation sits in orderly pews. I sit on my usual rock. Becky plays the organ. My dog plays with tumbleweed. The congregation listens to Pastor Fane. I attend to the wind. Pastor Fane talks about loving Jesus. The wind sings about mountains. In church, they lower their heads to pray. I raise my face to high blue sky. My dog licks my knee. We all understand we are blessed. And Sophia not only knows she is blessed, 
She also knows and has digested the poetry of Walt Whitman. Your newest book, Sophia and Mr. Walter Whitman, is a very entertaining romp wherein a golden doodle, Sophia, ruminates on her life and on her favorite poet, Walt Whitman, quoting his poetry and in a stream of doggy consciousness addressing him and giving her take on his lessons. You've always loved and appreciated and been able to be in in harmony with animals. You slept with your dog as a child every night and that- Yeah, she went to bed first and she didn't leave me much room. (laughs) I would like you to read a few poems from Sophia addresses Mr. Walt Whitman. Walter, please. Walter Whitman. Okay. Yeah, well, she's very formal, Sophia, right? Okay. Well, the first poem is called What the Dog Thinks. First off, woof, 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 woof. (laughs) That's pentameter. You see, I know all about poetry. I've read widely in a used Norton anthology I chewed next to the dumpster. So I know how those old dudes used to rhyme. I also know Mr. Whitman composes in free verse, like I do. But second off, or maybe most important of all, please don't call me the dog. I am Sophia, Sophia the first. (laughs) Sophia the Great, I have the softest white fur. Then we get a line of Whitman. I celebrate myself and sing myself. Back to Sophia. I can lick my own crotch. I can smell field mice (laughs) scrabbling under the grass. Now, let me explain to you about dog leashes. This is Sophia's poem, Nine Lines About Leashes. A leash is a telegraph wire. It's how I tell my lady person where we should go. If she says, don't pull, that means she isn't listening. Here's what Mr. Walter told me. Resist much, obey little. Yes, sir. (laughs) Let's hear another one. Endless afternoon. My person fills my water dish up to the brim, and then she heads out. Without me, the latch clicks. I run to the window, shove my nose between the curtains, watch her leave in the car without me. Now I jump onto the couch and knock down some pillows. Next, I turn in a circle and curl up for a nap. After a long time, I open one eye, listen to the quiet, and take another nap. I stand up and shake. I sniff my food dish, boring as ever. She's still not back. Whitman. The clock indicates the moment, but what does eternity indicate? Sophia, I'll be old by the time they ate dinner. I'll be (laughs) older by the time I get to lick their plates. I'm telling you, it's tough. 
Song of Myself, which of course is what Whitman wrote. Notice how dark it's gotten. The wind has come up slightly and the neighbor's lights have blinked off. Whitman, the city sleeps and the country sleeps. The living sleep for their time, the dead sleep for their time. And of these, one and all, I weave the song of myself. And then Sophia says, now all my long scribbling has made myself sleepy. Lullaby and good night, woof and good night, woof and woof and woof. <laughs> and now the softest fluting musical whisper of one tiny dog snore woof woof and good night <laughs> to you penelope <laughs> that was penelope scambly shot reading from her two newest books on dufer hill and sophia and mr walter whitman for many years pre-covid and hopefully post-covid Sophia and Penelope together hosted a reading series called The White Dog Salon at their home in Portland. The next two readers are two white dog poets, Mark Thalman, who has a teacher worked to impart wisdom to generations of school children, and wrote about his life and his teaching in his 2020 book The Peasant Dance, and Sam Rojas Chua, who stumbled across an art form he didn't know he was practicing and now imparts crazy wisdom. We open with Mark. Like Penelope Scambly shot, Mark Thalman was a teacher. But unlike Penelope, teaching English and creative writing in the public schools was a lifelong avocation and vocation. Mark wrote and published poetry for more than 40 years while working, and in 2009 published his first collection of poems, Catching the Limit, which he followed with a chapbook, Stronger Than the Current, which describes the Oregon forest and wildlife he grew up with. In 2018, he retired after 35 years in the classroom, and in 2020, Cherry Grove Collections published his second full-length collection, The Peasant Dance, which we'll be hearing from tonight. It's a distillation of a lifetime of experience and deals with power and clarity with teaching, love and loss, bitter divorce and happy marriage, his own illness and a powerful section that describes the family struggle as his father served as caregiver as his mother descended into Alzheimer's. Welcome, Mark. Thank you, Barbara. It's nice to be back on your show. Can you open with some poems about teaching? Sure. I taught English and creative writing in the public schools for 35 years, and people think they know teachers what they do, but uh, there's a lot that happens behind the scenes. Seventh grade. I teach students who live in mansions and wear the latest fashion and others who have no running water and a dirt floor. I teach pubescent boys who haven't had a growth spurt and believe they will be the next basketball superstar. 
I teach girls who plan to be models, whose faces are the color of dried paste from bulimia, and boys who think it's cool to be macho, imitating the imitations they see on TV. I teach the girl who is clinically depressed and picks the scabs off her face until they begin to bleed. And the boy who thinks he knows everything and another who is too embarrassed to read. I teach the 13 year old who is five months pregnant and wears a heavy coat to hide her condition. And the Jewish boy whose father committed suicide, the bullet passing through the top of the father's skull and then the ceiling, missing him by inches while sleeping. I teach the 47% on free and reduced lunch, the diabetic with the automatic insulin pump, and one who had heart surgery last month, I teach the vain who refuse to wear their glasses and leave them hidden at home so their parents don't know they can't see what is written on the board. I teach the boy who wears his mother's clothes when no one is at home and the students with whizzing hormones who walk awkwardly to class, unaccustomed to their sudden lack of coordination and newfound height. I teach the girl who was raped by her babysitter and like an idiot savant, can draw perfectly any picture placed in front of her, yet ask her to draw from her own imagination and the page remains blank. I teach the boy who is in remission from cancer another who needs a liver transplant, and the girl with slurred speech who walks with a limp from a birth defect, but is smarter than most of the class. I teach a boy who is crippled and his two brothers killed when their grandfather fell asleep at the wheel, and the girl whose mother is serving 30 years for murdering her father. I teach students from South Korea, Vietnam, Thailand, China, Pakistan, Ukraine, Sweden, Ireland, Mexico, and Guatemala. I teach a girl who will be on the Olympic soccer team, another who will publish mystery novels, and two boys who will star in the NFL. I teach a long river of students which will never end. Whoever shows up, that is who I teach. And despite everything, some of them learn. That's wonderful. You, do you have another? Can you read us another teaching poem? Yes, I can. This is called the PE Teacher's Breakdown. And I wrote this poem after I talked to a PE teacher, but he didn't have a breakdown. It was just something that I imagined. The PE teacher's breakdown. They found him wearing a life vest and rowing an inflatable raft. 
He was out of food and out of luck. The fishing pole had a reel with no line. Cunningham kept murmuring something about sharks. The gym floor was placid and the high intensity lights glowed like miniature suns. When the principal asked where he was going, Cunningham said he had heard of a faraway land called retirement. <laughs> Since your retirement, you've been able to focus on your painting, which you've always been interested in. Uh, and there's a poem called The Paint Store Owner. Could you read that? Yes, I can. The Paint Store Owner. The paint store owner always dreams in technicolor. Dreams that rainbows cascade down walls of his room. Of painting the White House green and red square purple. Of repainting everyone's life who passes by on the street. That he can blend and make new colors the eye has never seen that colors fountain from his mouth, painting murals in the air. Every sunset has a glossy sheen, every color an unlimited warranty. Whenever someone flips a wall switch, they are mesmerized by the beauty in their life, <laughs> like opening a fresh box of 128 crayons for the first time. And that's what retirement was like for you, opening a, a brand new box of 128 crayons. But, yes, it was. <laughs> but, but, but life took an unexpected turn uh, with your surgery. Can you read a poem from that? Yes. Um, it's called After Quadruple Bypass. If pain were water, I would call a plumber. I would not need a nurse to fill my glass. I would have enough for a pond of trout. If pain were water, the levee is about to break. If pain were water, I would be praying for low tide. I would carry an open umbrella even inside. I would be drenched to the skin by the internal typhoon. If pain were water, I would have drowned a long time ago. If pain were fire, I would jump in the Mississippi. I would call 911 to bring a hook and ladder. I would be a smoldering ember singing, stitch another piece of my heart. If pain were fire, I would be a torch burning alive. If pain were fire, I'd be blowing sacks in a smoky nightclub where only the stage is lit and light filters back like my notes filling the dim corners of the room preaching to souls whose church is to wake late on Sunday afternoons. If pain were fire, I would gladly give away these blues. 
Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> the the title poem of the book, The Peasant Dance, um, comes out of your close attention to paintings. Um, that's on page 88. Um, Correct. Would, would you read that for us? Sure. Uh, the Peasant Dance, and this is a Bruegel painting, and it's also on the cover of my book. The Peasant Dance. You cannot see me. I am standing behind the man who is painting a festival of villagers that have rigor mortis from lifting their feet in the same position and may stay rigid for hundreds of years. <laughs> Still wondering when they might stop dancing, the villagers look apprehensive as a first kiss the stable boy is trying to give his sweetheart. Everyone is tired of the repetitious farmer playing a drunken bagpipe tune, but are polite and do not show their disgust. Two drinkers quarrel, finding out they have slept with each other's wife. The first stretches both arms out asking forgiveness. The second raises one hand blessing him. For their sin, the wives have shrunken to the size of dwarfs. The women are smaller than the table. In an hour, they will completely disappear. And your mother heartbreakingly disappeared into Alzheimer's, uh, which you, there's a whole section of the book which is really powerful, chronicling that. And it's material that is so uh, emotional for you that it's difficult to read without tears. Anybody who has a, a loved one with dementia or Alzheimer's, I can't recommend this book enough. It's just really, I, I underwent that and, and, and this book is wonderful. I think the, the opening poem when the Alzheimer's is just, would you read that for us? Sure. Uh, Short-term memory loss. Mother, a five beta kappa, who graduated second in her college class and could have become a doctor or lawyer, although women back then were not encouraged to do such things, now could not remember where to find her glasses, keys, the car, left in a towaway zone. Ice cream and hamburger thawing in the trunk. Golf clubs swimming in milky blood. She watches the same video of Lawrence Welk three times in a month. The toilet she forgets to flush. Talking to me on the phone, she will discuss only the weather. And if I ask to talk to father, lays down the receiver to go look for him and does not come back. She knows she has trouble remembering, but can't recall why. When her husband explains the word Alzheimer's, she tells him, if I go insane, I'll commit suicide. 
sitting in her favorite chair. She compulsively clutches her thread-worn sweater, a security blanket, while I read her a story as she would to me before I could decipher the words. Uh, Mark, shall we finish with a poem about finding and far reaching and unexpected connections on i'm referring to because sure it's difficult to write a love poem and i found the easiest way to do that is to sneak up on it this is for <laughs> my wife carol because i swatted the fly which otherwise the garter snake would have eaten but now having one less gram of energy is caught by a hawk whose flight changes wind currents just enough that it snows at a quarter less degree latitude. Making a wave of Canadian air, cold air come down a week later so that when I step in tonight, I see a ring around the moon reminding me of 30 years of marriage and still being in love with you. Well, you snuck up on it and you sure did get it, Mark. I want to thank you so much. Um, you've been listening to Mark Thalman read from his newest book, The Peasant Dance. You can find Mark's paintings, order his books, and find poems and links to videos on his website markthalman.com that's m-a-r-k-t-h-a-l-m-a-n markthalman.com and, and Mark may you have another 20-25 years of retirement I sure hope so <laughs> <laughs> and, and may it be I'm as fruitful in both paintings and poetry as the, the, the last few years have been so once again, Mark Thalman. Thank you, Mark. Thank you very much. You're tuned in to KBOO 90.7 FM radio in Portland, Oregon, which brings you poetry by a variety of voices every Monday night at this time, made possible only because KBOO springs from a creative grassroots that is fiercely independent and inquiring. If you value poetry, music, art, independent commentary, and intelligent activism, it's time for you to water these grassroots by making a donation. You can do it online by going to kboo.fm and clicking on Donate in the upper right-hand corner. Next up on Talking Earth is the poet Sam Rojas Chua. Sam Rojas Chua is a multimedia and multilingual artist born in the Philippines. He was a sickly baby and his mother abandoned him in the crotch of a tree where the Virgin Mary was said to have appeared. Sam was adopted by a cultured Chinese family and grew up speaking Tagalog, the language of the Philippines, two Chinese dialects, and a smattering of Spanish which he describes as drag queen Spanish. He learned English when he was 12 and his family moved to the U.S. 
Sam is a gay man. He squelched his sexuality and was so devout a Roman Catholic, he thought he might become a priest. That he only broke away from the church in 2018 is a testament not only to strong familial and communal ties, but to his essentially devotional nature. In introducing one of Sam's readings in Portland, Lisa Gluskin Stone Street said, The thing that strikes me most about Sam's work is his experience as a traveler between worlds, languages, and artistic mediums. He is a maker open to what happens in the ineffable, that is, the liminal spaces, the spaces between dream and waking. A Semic writing is a visual form with no rules, a script which isn't script, whose appearance can vary from doodling to a secret code or an unknown cuneiform language. Sam began a Semic writing before he knew what it was, when he discovered he could break through a poetic block by touching his body to find where the emotion of the poem was, and then letting his hand and wrist move freely with a pen or brush on paper and incorporating whatever image arose as part of the poem. Sam has published two poetry collections, Fawn Language and Saying Your Name Three Times Underwater, and a collection of a Semic writing, Echolalia in Script, which was published as an art book in 2017. I spoke to him for more than 50 minutes and can only bring you an excerpt of our conversation here, opening with our discussion about a Semic writing. Welcome, Sam. Thank you, Barbara. And hello, Kebu. Asemic writing, it was something that was unknown to me uh, until someone saw my work and said, oh, I didn't know that uh, you did asemic writing. And I looked at him and said, what what is that? And he says, what you're doing? Uh, I said, oh, these sort of scribbles on paper. And uh, from that, I looked the word up. So asemic, meaning, you know, no, there's no semantic, there's no meaning. And it's an open form of script. And my approach to it there is through poetry. As you mentioned, um, when I'm working on a poem, um, I'll take a break from a poem, uh, especially, you know, when we write poetry, sometimes it's like, okay, this is an area of the poem where it requires more thinking. <laughs> That's when I grab my sheets of paper, uh, bigger than a regular table, and I'll grab whatever instrument is there, either, you know, I, I work a lot with uh, Sumi ink and brushes, and so, and I'll just dip my brush in my ink uh, and thinking about the poem that I'm writing, and ask myself this question, where is another place in your body where this poem can exist? Where is the feeling of the poem inside your body? And I'll locate that in my body, literally touching my body, touching my chest or my back or my arm or my thigh or whatnot. But most of the time I go for my heart. Um, You know, they say that the heart has... Uh, it has electrics. It's full of just electricity. So that is my invitation to my heart and my mind as well in relation to what I'm working with, whatever poem I'm working with. And what usually happens is when I start uh, doing this 
script, this open form of script on paper, images starts to rise. And from that, those images end up as a line in the poem. So that is my approach to asemic writing. And there are many, many approaches to it. Do you always then go back to the poem? Is Yeah, yeah, I do. So I look at I look at to see if it, you know, it usually, you know what? Sometimes it ends up uh, with the image that comes out from the asemic writing turns out to be the title of the poem. <laughs> so it becomes the container for it. And so the process of revision is like, okay, this is the image that came out from this open form script. Every page of the art book, Echolalia in script, is a single line of poetry and the visual line that inspired it. Here's Sam reading. Echolalia in script. I heard you in the script, in the song, words found on the evening menu of apothecaries built from a detonation of stars. You said sometimes not all light comes from above. So for two years, I wrote the recipe for my medicine of last thoughts. A 30-foot scroll thirsty for memory. Even the trees knew of my flawed desiderata, my failed cartography, my troubled cantatas, my echolalia in script drawn from watching flight patterns in the sky where I saw my father carrying my mother and the audacity of the red egg on his back my 3 a.m. pieta of birds listening to their feathers grow. At night, my god is a red swan, his heart is silver, his mind a moth. My alchemists dream in cursive, true languages born of beak and exhale, sometimes drawn from squid and saffron. These are the voices of my dead. This is their biology. A conception written with spit and prayer found inside a box in the middle of the throat. An infant of pearls spat out by thoughts. This is the cracking of the fontanelle. This is the birth of ego. This is the pulse of the brown-eyed orphan. These are twenty-one psalms sung by his middle tongue. This is the song of the hum. Here is the translation. The parish of my body opens at seven, and the owls of the sun stretch a long sentence into a day. So here, the sapphires fished from my mother's mouth, boats of blue-black beings. So here, taken with one hand, the fish, the red fish, with scales against its body. So here, a body. My church at night is a crutch, and these are the ways to open its doors. The heart is a chandelier, its ink in our veins, our blood is a long red fish. There's something I believe that happens in that gesture of wrist and uh, memory that turns the mind on, allows you to remember a memory that you would normally not think about unless you give the environment for that, uh, for your thoughts and memory to to enter. And you have said everything has a mouth. You attempt to communicate with the material world, with mushrooms and paper. Yeah, the the materials that 
I use, especially paper, I always thought that paper is um, waiting for memory. <laughs> I can literally feel memory happening or giving paper memory. So uh, recently I posted a photo on my Facebook page of uh, what I called my alphabets, which are the tools that I use when I do asemic writing. And uh, I titled it, Watching Paper Drink Water, Ink, and Sky. And I dedicated to a couple of friends of mine in Oaxaca, Mexico. And I'll read it to you really quickly. Sure. It says, these are my alphabets, my ammunition, my armada, mi familia. Ito ang aking mga daliri, mga diwata gawa sa mga tula. These are my tiny spines I've worn during the pandemic. Brushes and metals dipped in soot and squid. These are the tools I fight hellfire with. Mama, wahala, lie. Come and drink the sky with me. Fighting hellfire was as certainly a big fire underneath your creative process because you were raised in a very Catholic country and in a very Catholic family and in fact wanted to be a priest. And it was only in 2018 that you wow. finally broke away from the Catholic Church. My leaving the Catholic faith played such an important role in my writing and the work, it almost amplified what I was doing. When I speak of amplification, poems started making more sense to me. And the art started making more sense to me. It's, it, it's as if they're, they've been waiting for me all this time. The relationship that has opened up for me when I left my faith, I started falling in love with things again. Um, more importantly, started falling in love with this self, this body of mine, and the story that I have of uh, being relinquished as a baby, um, putting up for adoption. So it, it allowed me a voice to, even though there's a lot of um, uh, trauma around it, poetry and art has really given me um, a way to speak of it, a voice to speak of uh, what has happened. This is one that, uh, it doesn't have a title. I think it's good that it doesn't have a title. Yesterday I found a document. It was a photocopy of a photocopy, a reverse multifold in origami. It said, I am leaving this baby to the care of, I can't even continue reading this paper. So I look up the word relinquish. And I can't pick which definition applies. To give up or abandon. Control of something or a claim. To put aside or desist from. Something practiced, professed, or intended. Stop doing or adhering to. To let go, surrender, relinquish the lands by treaty. I go with the third definition because my body is my homeland. And after a couple of days of signing this document, my birth mother snuck back into the hospital to take me with her. Fact check. All stories herein. Plans fail. This is my story to tell. I used to believe in divine intervention. I used to believe in guilt. Guilt. 
the fact of having committed a specified or implied offense or crime, a feeling of having done wrong or failed in an obligation, make someone feel guilty, especially in order to induce them to do something. Please add religious indoctrination trauma. If you don't love me back, I will lock you in a basement and set you on fire forever. Hide and seek. Age, 19. Religion, Catholic. Name, Hilarda. I researched the name. No historical significance. Closest search, Gilada primate, sometimes called the bleeding heart primate. My heart disappears when I sleep for 45 seconds. It's a rare occurrence, often affects children born on Valentine's Day. Insert my happy birthday song here, best to whistle it. The heart is a scribe. Its ink is red. My blood is a long red fish. This is an authorization to the authorities and is given voluntarily upon my free will without intimidation. A boy found in the crotch of a tree. Request image of tree for further inquiry. A boy naked found early morning a foundling. Extremities intact. A baby of God. Motherless. Fatherless. A buoyant thing. 2012. I found my birth mother. We met in my hotel room. I asked why she took me from the hospital to only leave me again. Nataranta ako, hindi ko alam. Sabi nila, yung kulin ng balat mo, hilaw. Da, umiba, hindi daw mabubuhay ng matagal. Look it up. Google Translate. Translate.google.com Or get to know someone who speaks Tagalog. The better option. Origami. The Japanese art of folding paper into decorative shapes and figures. At night, I fold into odd figures. My feet turn into fins. When I sleep, I dream I am a prize. Oh. When did you write that, Sam? Was, is that a new poem? or? Yeah, it's, uh, I wrote it a few weeks ago. Sam, I asked you if your, if your poetry has changed since COVID. And you said that it had. Can you reshare some of the poems that have sprung out of that? Sure. Uh, here's a couple of pandemic poems. I, I tried to write uh, week one, week two, week three, week four, <laughs> when the pandemic happened, but um, I ended up with just 15 week. I'm going to read fourth week COVID-19 Northwest lowercase America. I've been looking at the moon since the quarantine four weeks ago. I don't say anything. I let it follow me like all the dogs I've lost. I drop breadcrumbs, tangerine rinds, peanut shells, all this to draw a trace back to my house in case my scent is different now. Less the morning coffee roast from the cafe that lingers on my sleeves. Less the scented oil left on my shoulder from an embrace. Less the taste of sun on the back of my hand. My clothes smell like rattan and rubbing alcohol now. 
I've watched all the home movies I can carry and sleep with coats of aloe on my chest. Moon, you one-eyed king, my cyclops, let all things find their way home now. Let the cupboards be full of cans of this and that. May our skin taste like apples again as we kick God out the door and leave him in the rain for doing nothing. At least God is out there with a coat in case it gets cold. <laughs> How about brush strokes with a pandemic and artist statement. Yeah, the story behind this uh, is the Bellingham Review wanted to see some of my work, my asemic work, and visual work, and um, they said, "Oh, also send an artist statement." And I didn't quite know what an artist statement was because I don't really consider myself an artist. But I looked it up and didn't. I didn't quite like what I was reading, <laughs> so I thought, well, why don't you just approach it how you want to approach it? And this is a poem that it turned out to be a poem, but this is actually my artist statement in that issue of the Bellingham Review. Brushstrokes during a pandemic, an artist statement. And there is uh, a line by Lipo. We turn, pause, look back and wave. I was told I was born at sunset, half past the infusion hours of memory into turmeric. I was told I was born blue on the lips. My mother's milk was nowhere to be found. No trace of white rivers, no name to call to when time arrests flesh. No equal, no documentation, no pebble, fish or guide. I was told I was born at sunset, between the theater of day turning into night, those vapored hours of the abalone listening for the sun's last instruction. A boy made from bleed disappears at night. He dreams in filaments in search of light. I was told I was born at sunset, there were news reports of whales beached outside the hospital. Their mouths held slices of the sun in them, their eyes of wet black pules blinking in February. These are all uh, written during the pandemic, so all yes. these poems are all new. <laughs> More notes from the quiet tree. I like odd poems, poems that loop back into itself where we find the fish in the water again, before its scales are grated off by the back of a knife. I like poems that doesn't end with a signature or the flavor of contest, credential, fellowship, and money. I like the bleed in the poem, the purr, the bark, the hiss. I like poets whose hands rattle, poets who dig for tender roots and make soup out of second-hand Bibles. I like moments when one falls off the edge of a library chair as people snicker. I like poems that linger around the broken neck of a light fixture, or poems that read like reference manuals arranged by perfumed hands. I like poetry that fall off the shelf when you don't know who else to turn to, when the doctor says you're losing the battle with small-type font grief and letters to whales too big to fit in your mouth. I like poems with mouths, 
poems that grow with carcass and feather, poems that inhale the weight of the soul, whatever that means to you. I like it because I used to believe in the pageantry of a soul. I wrote about souls and saw poetry as a part of the body. So I offered my words and won awards that saved me a seat at who knows who shindigs and went home thinking that the mirror in the foyer will see the fish of me this time, my scales glimmering in a certain calculus of light. Thank you so much, Sam. Thank you, Barbara. Thanks for inviting me. You've been listening to excerpts from a long conversation with poet and multimedia artist Sam Rojas Chua. Sam makes videos, tries to record and translate the sounds of the natural world, and has developed a physical ritual that brings him into poetry via his wrist, his body, and his brush. You can get a wider sampling of his work on his website and hear another interview and a fascinating discussion with him about his poetry ritual here on Kebu's Monday Night Poetry Show, Wider Window Poetry, hosted by Teal Ansari. Just enter Sam's name into Google or on the search box on KBOOFM. Sam's surname is spelled R-O-X-A-S hyphen C-H-U-A. That's Sam Rojas Chua, R-O-X as in Xerox, A-S dash C-H-U-A. This is Barbara Lamorticella, and this is KBOO 90.7 FM in Portland, Oregon, the radio station which has never forgotten either its grassroots or the world. I'll be back on the air on the third Monday in August, August 16th. Mm-hmm.